We are finishing uh, Colossians. However, there's a bit of Colossians that I didn't do a couple of weeks ago because it was the guest service, uh, and so I decided to take a bit of a different tack that we're coming back to today. So we're going to do the end of chapter 3, which is the really fun bit where Paul uh, says that women should submit to their husbands, and then we're going to do the end of chapter 4, which is the really fun bit with a list of names that no one knows. Woo, woo, woo! Let's do this. Okay. Um, Now, I'm going to start by reading the passage, if I can get it here. So if you've got a Bible, (laughs) um, then follow me from verse 18 of Colossians chapter 3. Wives, understand... Oh no, that's the message. That's going to be way too soft. Let's go for the NIV. Okay. Uh, Colossians 3 from verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Just 4 verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you have a master in heaven. Okay, that's great. I've realized I actually brought the wrong notes up, so I'll go and get the right ones. Um, but as I do that, um, I wonder when we come to a passage like this today, um, what it is that you kind of come thinking. It's not the most popular kind of go-to passage for um, uh, a modern church, this part of uh, Colossians, because it sounds on the surface of it like Paul is saying uh, a patriarchal society in which women are subject to their husbands and submit to their every beck and call is completely fine, and slavery, cool. So it kind of, like, you can read it like that, and, and it kind of sounds initially like Paul is saying that. And maybe um, you're someone who comes to Paul with a kind of degree of suspicion about this stuff. I've met a lot of people who think that Paul had some great ideas, but he was kind of a chauvinist. Have you ever met someone like that? Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, that's my wife. Uh, no, no, I'm kidding. Um, oh, dear. Too soon. Um, <laughs> so I wonder, when you come into this passage, what is it that you come expecting? Are you coming expecting a Paul that's kind of a bit antiquated, and we can take some stuff from him, but some stuff is a little bit out of touch? Are you coming with like a kind of, uh, a kind of tenseness? You, just, you want me to say something wrong. Like, don't just you dare tell me that I should submit to my husband, Sam. I remember Nige's teaching on this and being like, that's the one thing Yvonne, Yvonne just categorically refused at their marriage to say that she was going to submit to him because she knew she would be lying. Um, fair play. Uh, but what do you think? What do you what What do you think? Where do you think Paul is coming from in this passage? Can I invite us just to suspend judgment just for a minute and look at this passage a little bit in its context, and then think about what it might be saying to us? Uh, because actually, what I think we'll find here is, as always with the Bible, whatever you expect, when you actually open your heart to it. What you find is that there is truth and life and beauty and freedom and like not oppression and not downtrodding, downtreading on people. Does that make sense? 
Excellent. You're all with me so far. I've got 20 minutes left. More Lord. Okay, in the original context then, let's, uh, let's have a little think about the context in which Paul wrote to wives and husbands. So just to remind you, this is what he says. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be uh, harsh with them. You see, this was in a culture where basically guys rule. Massively patriarchal society. So if you're a guy and you have a wife, the wife is your property. That she, She's kind of classed as a bit of your property. If you have a child, the child is your property. If you have a slave, the slave is your property. The, the wife and the kid and the slave don't have the same kind of rights as the guy in the family. So this, isn't, this, is, this is just assumed in the context that Paul is writing to. The, the, the husband is the head. The husband owns everything. Um, the, the, then, it, there's kind of, um, then there's the kids and the wife and the slaves, and they all kind of come as a part of the husband's lot, as it were. So it wouldn't have been a surprise in the first century for Paul to write something like this. Wives, submit to your husband. Like 21st century England, that sounds like, Now, hold on a second. But in the first century, no one would have batted an eyelid at that phrase. But the second part, husbands love your wives. Now, that's a bit more odd in the first century. Like, what? I have to do something as well? Sons, like kids, submit to your parents would not have been unusual in the first century. No one would have been surprised by that. Let me just go back again. No one would have been surprised by that. But parents, like, don't exasperate your kids. Like, look for their best. Actually think with them in mind. Now, that's a little bit more odd. No one would have been surprised at Paul saying that slaves should obey their masters. That was their lot in life. That's what they should do. What, should, what smacks us more of a surprise is that Paul got something to say to slave owners as well. You don't just get to do what you like with your slave. You, you've got to respect them. You've got to treat them with equity. Does that make sense? The surprise here for us is in the first part. But the surprise in the first century was in the second part. Okay, I've done that. I can move on. That's good because we're on slide one of 19. <laughs> Good job. Did anyone bring any supplies, like food, drink, maybe a cup of coffee for the afternoon? Um, Yeah. And there's Wimbledon happening this afternoon as well, so you're extra keen for me to be done at some point. I should stop talking about that and and just keep doing this, really. Oh, well, no hurry. Um, So, okay, wives and husbands. Okay, wives, submit yourself to your husbands. Um, I've been to a fair number of um, conservative evangelical weddings in my time. Um, And, you know, at most weddings, the classic wedding passage is 1 Corinthians 13, which is, you know, love, love is this, love is that, love is very nice. Um, And that's kind of a very standard wedding passage. But if you go to a conservative evangelical wedding, um, then the standard passage is Ephesians 5, verses 22, I think, um, onwards, which starts with the phrase, wives, submit to your husbands, out, out of reverence for Christ, I think, or maybe that's just here. But wives, submit to your husbands. Now, just before that phrase in Ephesians 5, which is where the section starts in most breaks, just before it, 
in Ephesians 5.21, you've got this beautiful phrase, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, wives submitting to husbands doesn't just happen out of nowhere. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It happens in a context where both parties are submitting to one another. Does that make sense? Wives are being asked to here to fulfill their role as someone who, who is, is kind of the lesser in the relationship. How do you do it? Submit as is fitting in the Lord, or submit like you're serving Christ. It's basically saying, act like you're, you're living in relationship with Jesus. Treat your husband like you'd want to treat Jesus. Now, it might be a kind of ancient system, but that's just as applicable today, isn't it? I want to treat you like I want to treat Jesus. I want to love you like I want to love Jesus. So submit to, one, submit to, submit to your husbands um, as is fitting in the Lord. But like I said earlier, the massive surprise comes just next. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Um, in fact, Ephesians 5, uh, it's a very, very parallel passage actually, but Ephesians has a bit more detail. Um, says this, um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. Now, in the first century, Is it harder to be a wife or a husband? I'm guessing it's harder to be a wife. If you take these two commands seriously, and the wife is submitting herself to her husband, and the husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church, that means probably I'm not going to do just what I want. I'm going to do what she wants. Um, We're not going to make decisions based on just what I think. We're going to do decisions based on what she thinks. If I'm loving my wife as Christ loved the church, who in theory should the relationship be more difficult for? It should be, if it's done well, it should be more... Now, I'm not saying this is directly how we're applying it in the 21st century. Disclaimer, disclaimer. But, done properly in the first century, do you see how Paul just looked at, looked at this relationship? He, he's kind of got this cultural view of the relationship, and then he looks at it through the lens of Jesus and says, Wife, if, you, if, we, if, we, if we superimpose who Jesus is onto what it means to be a wife, and we superimpose who Jesus is onto what it means to be a husband, do you see that makes a massive difference in that relationship? Do you see? Great, then we'll move on. Children and parents. Now, um, <laughs> children, obey your parents. Now, I've got, I've got tons of experience in this. Um, in, in the Corrie household... When we were growing up, my parents are here today, so you can ask them about this later if you want. Um, we had um, something that I assumed was normal, but it actually wasn't normal, uh, really. Uh, we, we did uh, daily chores. Anyone else do daily chores in your household? Now, the daily chores worked out like this. You either did each morning before school, so like, this is crazy early, you either clean the kitchen, which involves cleaning the sink, sweeping the floor, and doing the washing up, or... Or you do the hoovering of the lounge, dining room, and sitting room. Or you clean all the toilets with your own toothbrush. Now, okay, I might have added a few little details there. Uh, (laughs) And every day we did one of those uh, chores. Now, I just thought that was completely normal. um, And so I submitted uh, without any complaint uh, or, or disobedience through my whole childhood, teenage years, and even through my 20s. Um... My parents have never had a problem uh, with, with, with this. Um, 
But so, so listen, the kids in the first century just had to do what they were told. They didn't have loads of rights. But you see here what Paul says. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. When you, when you do what you're doing at home, it's not just mundane and it's not just going nowhere. It's actually worship. You see that? Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. You're not just a kid who's inconsequential. You get to do worship even as you're at home. Even when you've got, you haven't got the rights of an adult, you don't get to decide everything about your life. But actually, kids obeying parents is, is, is beautiful uh, to Jesus. In Ephesians, again, it says, this, is the, this is the first commandment to come with a promise. That actually, if we submit ourselves to our parents, that there's, there's, there's a future, there's, there's glory, there's hope ahead um, that, that Jesus talks about. Now, moving on. Parents. Um, it says, don't exasperate uh, your kids. Now, a lot of people moan about parenthood. Firstly, uh, I, I just don't think it seems that hard. Um, so... Um, I mean, as, as a dad, I have, I have to say, I've never had um, a problem with my child. Um, it pretty much does what I say uh, when I want it to. And um, it's never disobeyed me, or so that I've seen. And it sleeps through the night and hasn't cried. So I don't know what you're all whinging about. Um, now, it, but one of the things that I have heard about uh, parenthood is that it can be somewhat easy to, to look at your kids and think, what do I want my kid to be? Who do I want my kid to be? And to load kind of expectation and um, uh, kind of to load on them a role that they didn't choose. Like, I really want them to grow up and, and definitely go to Cambridge and definitely get a high-flying banker's job so that they can pay for my retirement or whatever it is. Um, but, yeah, um, glory. Anyone in favor? Yeah, so you're like, yeah, <laughs> that needs to happen. Um, but uh, I think what this passage calls parents to, calls dads to, is, is to not just not impose stuff on our kids, but to really see them as people, to, to see them as individuals, to, to want them to grow up um, and be fruitful and be um, amazing in who they are. Um, so he takes, he takes this role of being a kid that everyone knew about, and he takes the role of being a parent that everyone knew about, and he says, what does it look like if I put Jesus on both of these? Does that make sense? What does it look like to be a kid, to do it in view of Jesus? Not just like Jesus is over there in my life and this part is completely separate. But what does it mean to be a kid in view of Jesus? What does it mean to be a dad in view of Jesus? And what we find is that that transforms the whole thing. It gives a completely different picture to the one that, that the culture expected. And then uh, slaves and masters. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Well, is Paul condoning slavery here? Like, how do we apply this in the 21st century? Surely this raises really significant questions about Paul's morality. Uh, does that mean he's just outdated and irrelevant? But actually, if you think of the context that Paul was in, he wasn't about to change the slavery institution overnight. So what does he do? He says, okay, let's take this cultural norm, whether it's good, whether it's evil, let's take this thing and let's see what happens when we put Jesus into each relationship. Let's see what happens when we just look at it through the lens of Jesus. So now all of a sudden, slaves, you're not just a mundane nothingness waiting to get through your existence and with no hope of any inheritance, no hope of any dignity, no hope of any purpose. That's how slaves were. Paul says, as a Christian, that's never true. 
As a slave, you actually ha- carry a dignity. You're, you're doing it. You're being watched, maybe not by your master all the time, but you're being watched by Jesus, and he loves it when you serve. Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. He says, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. Do you get that? What slaves wouldn't ever receive is an inheritance. But he says, actually, Jesus changes your whole identity. You're now not just a nothing and a nobody. You will get an inheritance in glory. Does that make sense? And then, and then, now, a a very strange thing about this passage is that when the chapter breaks were brought in, Paul didn't write in chapters, by the way. He he just wrote a letter. Uh, But then we we just chose to split it after 3.25 and hide 4 verse 1 in the next chapter. Masters, (laughs) provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, why was the chapter break put there? These are obviously three sets of pairs. Why split after number five? Does that make sense? Like, there's two potential reasons. One very nice reason could be that the people who split into chapters were hoping to draw more attention to 4 verse 1. Uh, by highlighting the, the duty of a master of a slave to uh, give love and compassion and equity to their slave, I would suggest a slightly more cynical approach, which is there were people who didn't want this bit to be read <laughs> because it means that when I'm in a position of power, when I'm a boss, when I've got people who, res- who report to me, I've got to treat them well. So masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. Right and fair means treat them with equity. Treat them like an equal. And then this next phrase would have smacked them right in the face because you know that you have a master too. Masters, you're actually a slave as well. (laughs) Just to God. And he's watching. Be nice. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's taking this cultural expectation of how this relationship works and says, what happens when I look through both parts through the lens of Jesus? A little bit like my graphical illustration here. What happens when we look at these things through the lens of Jesus? Now, that means, I think, that we have two options with this passage. We can either say that what Paul got to was the definitive and final answer for all cultures and all times on these three types of relationship. That's one way of responding. Now, if you do that, you can go out and buy a slave and you can um, have a patriarchal relationship in your family, patriarchal family. All those in favor? So the other approach... The other way of looking at it is to say, I think Paul is doing something a little bit different here. I think the whole way through Colossians, his focus has been, look at Christ. Look at Christ. Look at Christ. Christ is the be-all and the end-all. Jesus is the first and the last. He's everything. So I'm going to see every aspect of my life, not just through the lens of what culture tells me to do, not just how, how society sh- tells me to think, not even how my religious tradition tells me to think, but through the lens of Jesus. And that means that when, when we, ha- like, we need to think in a fresh way a little bit, no, a lot. We need to think in a fresh way, okay, what does society, what are the cultural norms around relationships at the moment? 
I would suggest that in the Bible, uh, the general culture was one of, you, you know, there's, there's marriage and there's institution and there's a lot of other weird relationships around there, but we don't like to think about those too much. Nowadays, we're in a very different paradigm around relationships, aren't we? Did anyone notice that? It's, things have changed a small amount. <laughs> and now, I would say that the mantra of relationship is that love is the most important thing, and when that fades, you have a responsibility to find it somewhere else. What does Jesus have to say to that? Do you see? What would Paul write now with that in mind? What would Paul write now with gender in mind? Gender's a massive issue. I'm, the other way, I'm just going to frustrate you because I'm not going to answer these questions. That would be too easy. Uh, but what, what, what does culture say about gender roles? About what it means to be a guy, what it means to be a girl, or what it means to work out what gender you are? What, and what does Jesus have to say in that? What happens when you look at that through the lens of Jesus? I'm not suggesting easy answers. I'm saying the church actually needs to do the hard work that Paul did and think about these things. What about family? What about work? Work is all about me getting ahead. Or is it? What does Jesus have to say to your work, to the way you spend time at your job, to how much you're on Facebook during the day at work? Ooh. Uh, here for good, it's great, because it's quite an old building. Um, so you can hear when people are coming, because it's like the floorboards um, move. So when you're in the office, you get, you've got a good five seconds to log off Facebook and... Um, and turn off the computer games and things like that, which is really, really helpful. But actually, what does it, what does it look like to, to kind of superimpose uh, Jesus onto our work? Our work is a huge area of mission. There's um, uh, something called the Cape Town Commitment, um, which a bunch of Christians decided kind of to write and talk about the mission of the church. And it shows us this. It says, The Bible shows us God's truth about human work as a part of God's good purpose in creation. The Bible brings the whole of our working lives within the sphere of ministry as we serve God in different callings. By contrast, the falsehood of a sacred secular divide has permeated the church's thinking and action. This divide tells us that religious activity belongs to God, whereas other activity does not. Most Christians spend most of their time in work, which they may think has little spiritual value. But God is the Lord of all life. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. What does Christ have to say about our work? What does he have to say about politics? <laughs> what happens when we look at the p- political norms of our culture and think, I wonder what Jesus has to say about that? What about immigration? What about faith? What about money? What about education? I would suggest our job as believers is to do what Paul did in this passage and just to say, okay, I'm not going to try and subvert, like try and say we should abandon all culture and do it our own way. But to say, actually, let's, let's do a bit of the hard work. Culture says this. How does Jesus shape and inform that? Does that make sense? No. Good. Okay. <laughs> Great. Um, now, To be honest, that might come up with some slightly um, tough answers, but I think, I mean, the answer's just always in Jesus. Like, come back to the the six things for a second, the wives, kids, wives, parents, you know, those things. Um, If you look at the life of Jesus, we can see what he thinks of those issues because you can see how he treated women, how he treated kids, how he treated dads, how he treated mums how he treated slaves, 
how he treated masters. We see Jesus do every one of those things. And in every case, he says, you aren't just your role. You aren't just the place in society that you fill. You have dignity. You have purpose. You're loved by God. You have a calling. When everyone was like, shove away the kids, he was like, bring them here. Does that make sense? I need to stop saying, does that make sense all the time? I just need to trust that you're intelligent enough to follow what I'm saying. How many of you are intelligent enough to follow what I'm saying? Oh. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Um, Great. But you see, with Jesus, it goes even deeper because he doesn't just show us how he treats people in different roles. He shows us exactly how to be in those different roles. Jesus models perfect sonship. He models what it's like to obey your dad fully. To even when it looks painful and ridiculous and nonsensical to do what the father says. He models perfect fatherhood, showing what it's like to love your kids and give yourself for them. He models perfect husbandhood as he's like the the bridegroom of creation and he's preparing a bride for himself just to love us and he gave himself for us. He's the perfect, um, perfect obedient servant as he like serves his guys and loves them and serves the father. He, he can be a servant and he can be a master. He's the perfect Lord. Do you see all these things are modeled by Jesus? And guys, that sets us up as Christians in all these areas. I think Jesus models tons of this stuff. What it means to be a guy, what it means to be a girl, what it means to have faith, what it means to move around as a refugee, what it means to work hard, what it means to be in relationship with people uh, all around you, what it means to be educated. Do you know all this is redeemed and transformed in Jesus? Now that's amazing because that means whatever position in life you have, if you properly understand this passage, whatever position in life you have, whatever role you play in society, your life can have dignity and can have purpose and is, is something in Jesus. Now that's, that's amazing. Skipping ahead, I want to I keep, keep on this theme because this, this part of chapter 4 really ties in with what we've just been doing. Um, oh dear, sorry, it's a little bit high. Oh, you can, uh, t- t- you guess the top line. Tychicus, okay, here, here's what's happening in this bit. This is the end of chapter four. We've just skipped a few verses, which Bev preached on last week and is great, and you can go and get that talk online. So we've gone from 3.18, we've done down to 4.1, and now we're going from 4 uh, verse 7. Um, to the end of Colossians. It's one of those really fun bits with a long list of people who you'll never hear of ever again. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Now, what we've already heard, we've heard of two guys... Now, who, who were they? Okay. And this is all going to make one point. Ready? Um, Tychicus. His job in this passage was to deliver Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. His role that he was fitting into, his role that he had to play um, in this part of his life was effectively to be a postman. Now, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but it, it, like, that's, that's his role here. He's delivering a letter. Then we mention Onesimus. Now, who is Onesimus? Onesimus is a runaway slave. 
Where does he fit in in society? Actually, right at the bottom of the ladder. He ran away from his master, who's called Philemon. There's a whole tiny, tiny book, um, which actually was probably written with this letter. Um, and Onesimus ran away from his master, Philemon. Then he met Paul, gave his life to Jesus. And now his challenge is thinking this. What does culture say about who I am? And then what does Jesus say about who I am? And how am I going to behave? And he interprets that in this sense. I'm going to return to my master that I ran away from and give myself into his care again and see what happens. That's the way Onesimus responds to the call of Jesus on his life. Then we get, um, who's next? Uh, Aristarchus. Now, Aristarchus is in jail. Now, when you're in jail, you can't do an awful lot. They didn't have Wi-Fi. So um, he just had to sit there and be in jail. His whole identity is now a prisoner. He's stuck. He's lost. He could just think, oh, man, this just sucks. Let's stage a prison war coup thing. What do you call it? A riot. That's the one. Um, And break out because Jesus called me to be free and free indeed. Amen. Um, But instead, no, he said, "What, what does Jesus want me to do? And he hangs out in prison with Paul. And one of the things that Paul loved to do in jail was just worship. I think that's what they were up to. I think they were worshiping and praying for the church. He doesn't say that here, so that's my guess. Um, but I think like, he, his challenge was to think, okay, who am I? What's, what's the role that I've been fitted into? And then how does Jesus redeem and interpret that role? Then there's Mark. Mark deserted Paul um, in, in the book of Acts, we read about this. Mark was walking with Paul for a while, and then the heat came on, and he was like, it's too much. I'm going back to Jerusalem, and it caused major tension um, in their relationship. But now look what's happened. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, you've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, I think that bit, you received instructions, shows that the church know that there's a bit of a history between these guys. It's like, what's Paul going to say about Mark now? And I think he's saying, we've made up, like we've recovered that relationship. We've, so, so Mark it, it has a choice here. Does he be defined by his history? Does he be defined by the fact that he's made a mistake? Or does he keep walking, keep looking? And, and I think he's reconciled with Saul and is now open to serving God again. And the, then there's uh, a couple of guys who are mentioned. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. Uh, they called him Justice, so it wasn't confusing uh, with the Jesus Jesus, if you know what I mean. Um, these are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So this guy is a conservative Jew. He's grown up uh, as a religious uh, guy. He knows what he's talking about. But then in the next sentence, we've got Epaphras, who's a Gentile. He, he didn't grow up in church. These people will come with different baggages, different past, different, but, but they both have a purpose. They both have a dignity. And what does Jesus, how does Jesus want to reinterpret who I am, reinterpret my cultural role? Is that, are you tracking? Excellent. We're nearly there. We're getting towards the bottom. There's Luke, who's a doctor. Uh, this is a clever Luke. And then we have Luke over there. Um, and, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, you know what I mean, though. <laughs> Uh, Luke's an academic. I've lost it. Um, I'm going to skip the mass for a second. Uh, go to Nympha. Nympha is a woman. Whoa. So now we've got already, Paul's just talked about the role of slaves. He's talked about the role of women. Now in this list, both come up. Ah, huh, interesting. Um, but actually, it, like the fact that a woman even gets mentioned here is incredible. Um, in such a patriarchal society, but she has a church meeting in her house. She, this woman has dignity. She's not just said, what's culture expect me to be? She said, no, who am I in Jesus? What's he say? What's he say about my role? 
Um, and then uh, we come to uh, this last little bit where it says, Tell Archippus. Now, I don't want to be Archippus at this point. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. Now, why does he get called out? Surely everyone has to do that, right? But it's like you, maybe he was starting to slip slightly or whatever, or starting to uh, go easy on the, the edges of his ministry. But Archippus was probably one of the church leaders. And so Paul's encouraging him, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. And I would suggest that one of the overarching lessons from all that we've looked at today is this. Jesus wants to do what we are called to do. He doesn't tell wives to fix the husbands. He tells wives to do their job as a wife really, really well. He doesn't tell husbands to try and make their wives the sort of wife that they would like. He tells them, love them, whoever they are. Does that make sense? We're not called to sort out other people's work. We're not called to just correct each other. Though that is a part of Christian discipleship. So I'll do that. But, um, but w- what we're called to do is complete the ministry that we have received. What is God calling us to? And how does Jesus shape our lives and shape our futures? So really, oh, uh, okay, let's come back to Damas. Um, the lesson from Damas's life is we hear about him in three places in the New Testament. One is here. One is at the end of the Philemon, which was written basically the same day. And then once much later, at the end of, of 2 Timothy where it says this, Paul's writing again, Damas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Damas, because he loves this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. When we see his name in this list here, he's a friend of Paul. He's walking with Paul. He's working with Paul. He's seeing the miracles that God is doing in Paul's life. He's involved in the ministry. He's hearing teaching from Paul. He's, he's running the race with Jesus. And then we hear that at, at some point in the future, he's like, do you know what? <sighs> this whole walking with Jesus thing is a little bit much. And I think I'd like to take an easy attack. And what we should hear there is that there's this call at the end of this book Whatever calling God has put on our lives, whatever ministry he's given us to do, wherever you find yourself at work, wherever you find yourself at church, wherever you find yourself in your family, maybe you wish you could trade them in for a different one at this stage and you'd do it all differently if you had another chance. Um, I don't know what you're thinking, but that's not the point. The point is, how do we fulfill the ministry that Jesus has given us and not give up and not kind of not make it? Basically, don't be a dumbass. <laughs> Glory. <laughs> so really, the question that we're asking today is, is this one. What's, 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 what's you, what happens when you take your life and overlay Jesus onto it? Does that make sense? <sighs> okay. That was a, a rough journey through the last part of the book of Colossians. And I hope that you are all perfectly enlightened. Um, What should we do? We should probably pray. Yeah, it's either that or I forget that I've told you everything already and then redo all my points just to make sure that you've understood them. Um, Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you that you um, came to set the captives free. Lord, I want to pray for everyone in this room who feels like there's a situation in their life where they're downtrodden or um, constrained or um, locked in, Lord. I want to pray for those who, uh, if there's anyone here who's in a relationship that's really difficult or a uh, family relationship that's really difficult or 
um, Lord, where we're in work lives that are really difficult and our bosses are really difficult and um, whatever. Lord, thank you that you see that. And thank you that that's not an insignificant part of our life. Thank you that we can speak for you in it. And thank you that you want us to be free. Father, thank you that for every one of us, there is no um, unspiritual part of our lives, but you want to redeem and transform everything in Jesus. And Lord, we just give you our whole selves. Lord, we give you our work life. We give you our, our relationships. We give you our hopes and our dreams about the future. And we just surrender them all to you, Lord. We have a master in heaven and we give you our lives. Lord, I pray for those of us who are in positions of power as well. Lord, whether it's parents, whether it's bosses, everyone in authority in this room, which is probably nearly all of us, to be honest. I pray that you'd give us your grace to serve those who we lead and to love them and to call out their potential, to not just look at what can we gain, but to, to think, what can I give? And Holy Spirit, would you make us more like Christ? Lord, we've been looking through this series at how just, just how amazing you are. And Lord, we want to be more like you. We want to be more like you, Lord Jesus. We want you to transform every part of our lives. So we welcome your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd go with us, not just today, but this whole week, this whole month, this whole year, this whole lifetime. And Lord, just take us and do what you will in us. Amen.